You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and co-owner of Sacred Chill West. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. Welcome, y'all. Before we get into today's episode, just want to say thank you to today's sponsor, Manta Sleep. Manta Sleep makes products for a better night's sleep. And actually, I think they make products for better meditation. And so you probably have already heard me talking about how much I love my Manta Sleep mask for sleep at night. This is legitimately the most comfortable thing I have ever put on my face. And what I haven't talked about yet is I actually decided to start using this mask for meditation too. If you've been listening for a while, you know I am a proponent of meditating wherever you are, whenever you can get it in your day. It is awesome if you can meditate in a beautiful, silent space with incense and candles and maybe some nice music. But the majority of us are at home with our partners, our roommates, our kids, our pets. The phone is ringing. The garbage man is picking up the trash. There is stuff happening in our day. And yet we're going to sit down and try to go inside for even two to five minutes. So I started in my day when I'm meditating, putting this Manta sleep mask over my eyes. And granted, perhaps it looks slightly odd, but let me tell you, it's so comfortable on your face and it's a hundred percent blackout. So it really does provide this sense of stepping out of the day and going inside. I've really found it has enhanced my meditation practice only in that it eliminates some of the exterior distraction for me when I'm meditating in the middle of a busy day. So just a shout out in case you're interested, You can save 10% using code MINDFUL10, M-I-N-D-F-U-L-1-0 at mantasleep.com. Now let's get to today's episode. Hi, you guys. Welcome to today's episode. I am so excited to share this interview with you. Today, I am bringing you a conversation that I had with artist Kim Kranz. So Kim is um, an artist who created the Wild Unknown Tarot deck, the Wild Unknown Animal Spirit card deck, the Archetypes deck, and most recently, a graphic memoir called Blossoms and Bones. The reason I'm having her on the show is as I was going through this memoir, To me, what I perceived was that I was watching the innermost experiences of somebody unfold on the page. Now, this story that she shares is her personal struggle with a midlife eating disorder, um, infertility, and a divorce. So what I found was going through this book, even if none of those issues relate directly to your own life, watching the process of her learning how to be with those very deep and strong feelings is an experience any meditator will resonate with. As a bonus, Kim and I share a few yoga teachers um, in our past, so we have some threads of shared practices. This interview 
I think is spectacular. I was so excited to talk to her. We spent some time talking about her um, personal practice of drawing the feeling. And so if you've listened to me before, you know I'm a huge proponent of journaling after meditation. Kim's version is really to take pen to paper and draw. Even if you especially if you would not call yourself an artist, as you'll hear her say. We talk about archetypes. We talk about her practice of exploring the element of timelessness. And y'all, if you are struggling in this moment in particular with dualities, particularly right and wrong, you're going to love what she has to say about her work with the infinity symbol mind-blowing stuff. So join us for today. Quick note before we get started, if you are listening with kids around you, there is an F-bomb dropped in this particular episode, Um, so fair warning on that. Now, let's dive in and chat with Kim Kranz. So Kim, welcome to the Mindful Minute. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Thanks for having me, Meryl. Yeah. Um, So... I, first, I'm just going to fangirl for a minute because I love your work, all of your work. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and I'm really excited to get to talk to you today specifically about Blossoms and Bones, your new graphic memoir. But before we do, I was wondering if maybe you would share a little bit with us about your meditation practice, what it looks like. Do you meditate daily or um, what is that practice like for you? I was just thinking about this question, this asking myself this very question yesterday, and there's such a plethora of practices, you know, it's, um, it can be overwhelming. It's also thrilling. And I think about all the mantras and all the different uh, kriyas, the sitting practices, the recitations I've learned in India, the simple um, you know, Buddhist practices and sitting with a, a Zen koan, um, candle gazing, drawing, like standing meditation, <laughs> you know. I, w- I found myself so overwhelmed yesterday by this feeling of um, never quite doing enough of the practices. It's also um, backed up right against excitement about all the practices. Like, wow, I've never done a 30 day um, meditation with this mantra. Gosh, one could study it for a year actually. And, um, and I found myself going down that, that path. And then I started to think about my life more visually and what my tendencies are and my tendencies since I was young were was to make art and specifically to make drawing and collage works on paper which has to do with the idea of um, the underlying structure of putting things together to create coherent meaning and I started thinking about my practices as collage making And when one is making a collage, there's, it can be all over the place and kind of unfocused and kind of not amount to nothing, but not really lead you anywhere. And I'm not talking about that kind of sporadic 
not, not a sporadic approach to one's practice, but an ease in knowing I'm pulling from different lineages. I'm pulling from different teachers. I'm using a little of this and a little of that. And on some days it looks different than others. And the rigidity that I have used in a lot of my life to like be super disciplinarian and do this practice for one year, or even 45 minutes of this thing, it's not um, even where I want to be in my life as a person, as an approach, as it doesn't feel like it applies to life, um, to my life in the way that I want it to. So the same way one makes a collage is, is at, at first you're kind of working with many disparate parts and then eventually there starts to be a cohesive image that appears. And, and then um, my task visually is to like do my best by whatever means to honor that image and investigate it. And so that's what my practice is now, which is a long circuitous answer to your question. But I'm more waking up these days, which is really new for me and I sit at my altar and I ask the question, in what way can I further understand this question or essence of this moment? And so this morning I sat and I asked that question like very humbly because I felt, do I do this? Do I do that? I haven't done this in three days. Maybe I need to work my body out more physically and, and so on. And um, the amazing thing is when one asks a question like that humbly and with openness and trying to ask, you know, outside of an egoic space, uh, an answer likely comes. So the answer was um, get outside, do the walk that you have been doing. And so I, I got up from my altar, which in the past I would have like just that, Oh no, you have to sit down here and do this recitation for 40 minutes or whatever. And, um, if the practice doesn't kind of contain or enhance that sense of resonance or joy or wonder, it doesn't have to be joy isn't quite the right word, but resonance, I guess, is, is maybe more accurate, then um, I'm not that interested in it as a dogmatic thing. Um, I'll experiment with it if I'm working with a new teacher. But to follow the thread here of, of this morning, I went then and did my walk and it took a while for me to get out of my um, busy mind. But eventually I did and I did my walking meditation like I have been doing basically each morning in, in quarantine. So the quarantine is adding a new element to all of our lives and our practices have to shift. And um, it's likely that if we ask the question, um, What's, what's the ingredient that's needed right now in the practice um, for me to feel the resonance that is myself in the world, that an answer will come. And it's a surprising time, so it's likely the answer will be surprising. It could be movement. It could be, um, you know, sound therapy where you're working with, like, a har old harmonium that's stuffed in the closet or um, a guitar or... Uh, um, you know, I've been playing my harmonium a lot at night and doing some like humming practices um, of really simple one note, you know, mantra like ma, the, the, the resonance of the syllable ma, M-A, and hum, Brahmari breath, the bees. Uh, like, you know, I, I've been much more open-minded and experimental uh, with my practices than I have in the past. 
I love that. And I, I really am resonating with the visual of practice as collage. And, you know, my early teachers were mindfulness meditation teachers and very much taught that this is the practice that has existed for 2,500 years. You don't alter it. You just do the practice. And for many years, that's sort of the regimen I stuck to. And it's only been maybe within the last two years that I've really let myself acknowledge the ways that I vary it and embrace it. And then I want to tie this right into your book because as I, and I'll let you sort of introduce the book to the, to the listeners and tell them about it. But as I was going through this memoir where you essentially draw the feeling for 30 days, I realized that really what I was doing was getting a look inside your very personal, you know, I'm going to call it a meditation practice. Maybe use those words, maybe you wouldn't, but I thought, that's such a brave thing to like, I don't know that I would be brave enough to say, let me show you what I see on the inside of my meditation practice. And so, yeah, tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I think if anyone would have framed it like that to me at the beginning, I would have uh, bailed. (laughs) 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 You will have to reveal what you're thinking for 30 days straight. I would, you know, I just wouldn't have signed up for it. Um, It's, it's interesting to talk to you today because it was a year ago today that I started writing the, the book. I noticed that. Um, which is fascinating because what a year, what a year it's been. But with the book, Blossoms and Bones, I was kind of coming up against a feeling that I couldn't kind of coordinate or discern or untangle through any other means, whether it be my meditation practice or asana or therapy or, you know, specialists or, or what have you. So I decided to kind of, again, make a collage of sorts and um, of practices and put creativity and drawing as the main practice. So like in Kundalini, they often do 30 or 40 day kriyas, which is repeated practice of the same thing. So I thought, well, I'll just sit down and draw this as a dedicated practice for um, 30 days. And I had done this before in grad school or in undergrad, I did six drawings a day for one year. I just wanted to see what would happen. What that's, that's often a question of mine is like, what will happen if one just keeps going at what they're doing, whether it's a meditation or a relationship or um, a practice or what have you. The question kind of is what happens when um, things get messy or boredom, you know, the ego eventually gets bored and it's like, I don't know what to do anymore and you're still showing up. So um, I'm going to go do something else while you and your unconscious or that mysterious interior can have a conversation. So um, that's what happened with Blossoms and Bones. And, and at first I thought it would just be 30 individual drawings and it turned out to become like in front of my eyes, uh, uh, a whole narrative and graphic memoir. So the practice itself became the book in, in real time. And this took place, you stepped out of life and went to an ashram, yes? Um, and so were you, to, I guess maybe tell us a little bit about what guided you there? And then 
uh, what I'd love to hear you talk about is the intersection of it, whether you want to call it meditation or simply like stepping into a place of stillness, whatever that was for you, and then being able to express through drawing what you were feeling. Yeah, I left um, on a on a trailways bus from New York City and came up to um, the Himalayan Institute, which is in the Poconos. And for all intents and purposes, I, I pretty much dropped off from social media and email and um, all the things. I let a lot of things slide, which is one of the conflicts of the book is like letting things slide that you think you're supposed to, you know, be responsible for. And so although I was, you know, quote unquote, working there, which is, um, you know, at, at any ashram, they, they usually involve karma yoga. So I was doing my four to six hours of karma yoga a day, which is like, you know, anything from cleaning tables to cleaning, tidying bathrooms, changing sheets, uh, what have you. Eventually I found myself on running their Instagram feed for a second, but th that's another story. <laughs> um, uh, so that left me with enough time and space to be walking in nature a lot and also sitting in the shrine. I mean, at that point I was meditating and it was more traditional um, lineage that you're, you were alluding to earlier with, you know, a specific practice that's given that you do for years at a time. And so I was doing that for, I don't know, it was, I was probably meditating like two-ish, three-ish hours a day. And so, and then I was drawing. So I wasn't sleeping very much. I was up, um, you know, I was in the shrine by six, meditating, you know, doing my karma yoga and drawing, rushing back to my room, drawing, after meals, drawing. Um, a lot of people saw me there, like in any nook and cranny of privacy I could find drawing. And then I would stay up really late and my room was like covered with pens and erasers and, you know, all kinds of things. But um, what happened was that the, the, the gap between meditating and drawing thinned. It was like when I was meditating in the shrine with my eyes closed, I was seeing the drawings without trying I was hearing the prayers that are in the book without trying to script them. And I was basically like running from the shrine to the page to try to get down what I had seen or heard in the details that I could um, retain without my ego getting involved with like, oh, it should be like this or you know what needs to happen that would be really cool right now is if the skeleton did this. It really was like, show me the way, show me the way, show me the way. And it, it spooked me <laughs> on many occasions in its, the depth and the shadow in which it was showing me at the same time, the lightness and the levity and the, the, the beauty and the fullness and richness of the prayers that were being revealed too, I felt in awe of all of it. And so my job felt almost like a reporter <laughs> each day, like how can I get to the page and um, depict what I've seen and let this keep happening. And so what would you say to 
I feel like you probably get this question all the time. What would you say to people who say, oh my God, I'm not an artist. Oh my God, I can't draw. Does the practice of, so I'm a big proponent of journaling after meditation and I have done that for many, many years. And it is only this last year that I decided I'm, instead of using words, I'm just going to pick up a pen And I'm very much the person who like, if you were like, we're going to draw something, I would try really hard to get out of the room really fast. Mm. And I think I'm not the only one that has that inclination. And so I am curious if you feel like there is a place or a resonance for those that might be timid around drawing or thinking, oh my God, I'm not an artist. Is it still worth it to potentially explore drawing as part of a meditation practice? It most certainly is, and it might not be specifically drawing, but it could just be uh, sitting with an image that arises in, like, you could use the phrase, like a healing image or a compelling image that has a certain, one will know it when they feel it, has, like, a certain tone to it that makes the body feel a certain way, and... um, I could think of it as like a remedy or a, 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 a guiding, leading image. One can just sit with it and kind of move it around the body or relate to it or whatever they want to do. These, you know, the, the way that I learned and kind of taught myself to, quote, draw the feeling, which was the practice that I developed like while making this book, basically, is kind of like an iteration of, of the Jungian idea of active imagination. Um, which is this idea that the images are waiting for us to engage with them and they have intelligence and a life of their own to be revealed, whether shadowy or light or um, joyful or, or restrained, those images are seeking us. Um, and so when we give them attention, we can reclaim a certain amount of energy and vitality and knowledge and it's a boon it's a boon so but you know art making is so (laughs) art making is so wild it's like even while you were asking the question I was thinking like you know if you apply the same logic to any other um, discipline or career it's so hilarious it's like someone who's studied finance for like 30 years and I show up and I'm like I'm not a banker and they're like, yeah, no kidding. You don't, you don't, you didn't study this for 30 years. Like I've literally been studying drawing, you know, when I was 15, I started practicing three hours a day with my teacher drawing. Like, you know, like I wouldn't go to a yoga teacher who's been teaching for 30 years and like, I, I'm not a yoga teacher. She would just say, yeah, it's cool. Just breathe for a second with me. You don't need to be a yoga teacher. You don't need to be a politician just consider for the next few moments how you know politics let's let's t- let's talk for a moment <laughs> so art making is so hilarious where everyone says uh, there's a debate about like everyone's an artist and it's like s- certainly creativity exists everywhere but in no other um profession do people say like well everyone's everyone is a banker <laughs> 
That is so true. And I <laughs> no, never not. heard it that way. I'm thankfully loving this. Not everyone is a banker. However, it's helpful for me as an artist to think about my finances and to get my finances clear, to build a relationship with them, to notice where the anxieties are, where my, where my um, courageous moments are with money. So it's a hilarious situation. We're, we're in a conundrum with art and we're bound up in it for some reason. It happens with other things like money too, but I think the, the, the point for me with people who are newcomers or people who have been practicing for a long time, it's like, let's break free of just the expectations and ego and get into the feeling state of what's emerging. The materials will always lead the way, which is so cool about art making. So you have your collage materials and they'll be so inspiring that the person is like off to the races in a few minutes. Um, or if it's watercolor or ink or whatever, as if the person can just simply get curious about the materials, then that artist in them that hasn't been, you know, trained or honed over the years will become interested. And I feel like that's maybe the secret. I mean, I don't know uh, for any, um, discipline. It's like you just get interested in money for a second and you're on your way to building a relationship with your finances. You know, or meditation. Get, yeah. Exactly. Or, or, or your health or, you know, what have you. But it's, it's about a kind of curiosity rather than being in the mind state of it should be like this. It should look mm -hmm. like this. My meditation should feel like this or all that stuff just gets in the way of our, of our connection to what what is in front of us yeah so can we talk for a minute about the archetypes deck that you mm. created yes. I've been using this a lot in my personal practice I love this deck and I um, I've worked with animal spirit decks for a long time I love yours but I had never been exposed to to archetypes in this way where um really uh, so I started working with it just by drawing a card before I meditated sitting with the image for a little bit with my eyes open and then closing my eyes and then practicing and now I'm finding that I'm almost doing the reverse where I practice and I notice what I'm seeing and then I go hunt through the deck to see what resonates is similar so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the creation of this deck um that's interesting that you're doing um I love to hear these kind of stories where um, you know, people don't often like to hear that I'm not interested in rules around how to use decks, <laughs> but, um, I love to hear how people, you know, you're, you're flopping it. You're now lo looking for that resonance once you see it in yourself, which is really, really interesting. And Gosh, I, I'm, I'm never advocating a kind of, again, it's not like a discordant sloppy collage of practices that I'm suggesting one makes. Like no rules, like kind of like, fuck it, whatever. You know, it's just, that's not it. It's more like once we really get into the multi-layered, uh, super um, complex, dense and and mesmerizing um, 
interior of the self, it's almost like we, we need to have some kind of strategies and technologies, but we also need to be really intuitive um, and in touch with like what works and sense when it's working and stay there rather than returning back to like, oh, I'm going to go, um, you know, with some of the images and blossoms and bones that were really frightening. It's like, instead of staying with that image, I can say like, oh, I'm now I'm going to use the mantra to get away from that image actually. I'm going to like be in denial, repress that more because uh, the mantra is actually more comfortable at that point. So it becomes like, oh, the mantra is, is giving me enough peace and solace to look at this. And when it's time to look, I will, um, with compassion, look as best I can, as long as I can, knowing that I'm, I'm safe, I'm held, and it's for the greater good. So that's like an example of adapting a practice. Um, you know, no one taught that to me, but I feel like my teachers would all encourage me to do such a thing. And, and archetype stack, to get back to your question, is another example of a kind of outside-of-the-box use of practice. I mean, I, I got to the point, I was studying at Pacifica while I was making it and working a lot with um, Jung's ideas of, of um, the unconscious, the creative unconscious, and um, the, the intuition, the guiding force, the leading image. Um, you know, it's this, it's the engagement with other, saying like, well, I don't actually know the best answer, so maybe you do, whatever, whatever you benevolent, wise force may, may be. And so I took, I was like, well, you know, I've already drawn two decks. I've drawn a lot of books. I've kind of done this already. What if I let this mysterious force lead the way in the making of this deck? And I thought, well, how could I do that? And so I used a pendulum for almost the entire um, decision-making process of the deck. So I had, for example, um, the card that now appears as the crone card. I had several different names for it. You know, it could be the the wise mother, the, the grandmother, the old woman, the the sage, the, um, you know, she's known as many names. And so I would go through and just hold the pendulum and put it on different uh, names and simply ask, uh, simply state my intention, which was, I, I would like to have guidance so that this deck can resonate at the, the level that is most helpful in healing for this specific time on earth. And um, so I started that, my drawing practice like that basically every day. And some cards were cut out of the deck because of, you know, this, the swing of the pendulum. And some cards I would, I would ask, like, do you want the background like blue or red? And, and so it's, it's almost like um, this idea of collaborating with the unseen or to what degree in the pie chart of creativity, what percentage is the invisible um, playing a role? And for this deck, more than anything I've ever, I had made up until that point, Blossoms and Bones is basically, <laughs> the pie chart is totally <laughs> um, reversed in terms of my, my old work. But, you know, my first decks, I was still like grappling for a lot of of control over the content and perception of the content with archetypes. I would say it was like a, 
at least a 50-50 split, if not more, in terms of decision-making. And it really was an experiment for me. I'm like, okay, well, if I am going to collaborate with the unseen, like what's going to happen? And I have felt uh, since the deck has come out, like the response to it has been really interesting. And I think it, it services people who, who are kind of ready for or interested in that type of mysterious resonance too. They're okay with an unknowing and a holding of a big question that has a certain amount of spaciousness. And so it's been really fascinating to watch. You're talking about this reminds me of my favorite page in Blossom and Bones. I keep contemplating tearing it out, but then I'd be sad. It was torn out of the book. I'm like, I'm going to have to get a second one so I can rip the page out and frame it. But there's it's somewhere towards the beginning and it's almost entirely white. And all it says is spaciousness is priority. Hmm. And I, if I remember correctly, this book came out at the very beginning of March. Is that right? Yeah. Because I remember reading that and seeing that page and thinking, this is exactly what my practice has been telling me is needed. And I was sitting with that and working with that. And it wasn't, it was barely two weeks later that we found ourselves in quarantine which is such an interesting flip of the idea of spaciousness as priority because it's forced spaciousness in this moment versus something you're choosing to create. I don't know where I'm going with this. Other than no, I am so glad you bring this up because it's um, spacious space and time for me right now are more interesting than ever. I mean, my my practice, I was, I was quite vague about what my practice is in the beginning of the conversation, but a lot of it has been oriented around um, building a relationship with time and timelessness, past, present, and future, and the image of weaving those two into one felt experience. And it's a very, very mysterious Place once one starts to practice with space and time as I'm just going to call them elements because that's what they're starting to feel like for me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very, very potent territory, but it, you can tell from my like wordlessness. I, I don't quite, I, I, I certainly don't understand it at this point, but I know that it's, where my practice is leading me is towards a a deeper understanding of or relationship with time. And, uh, and that includes uh, it being in no way linear and, and not in fact, any shape that I can discern quite yet. In fact, it might have more to do with spaciousness in itself that it's, it's like a, it's spatial. It's more of a sphere than uh, anything linear. So um, it's really trippy territory. I'm curious to see like where the next projects of mine take me because I'm thinking like, God, who, who, (laughs) how do you depict timelessness? And like, where am I going? Am I just losing my marbles over here? Like by myself in my, in my, in my studio, in my house, you know, I'm like, whoa, I'm just in timeless, uh, <laughs> a timeless nutcase. But, but it's, um, I feel like all my practices have been leading me to this space and to this house and to this, um, 
little altar that I have and to these teachers and uh, to be able to contemplate, um, you know, this, I think it's like a midpoint in my life. I turn 40 next, next month. And to be able to contemplate as I sit on the precipice of that, you could think of it as like an infinity shape. I'm at the knot and looking towards future and past and uh, trying my very best to sit in a, in a state of presence around that. And, and that, that's a, a really interesting practice. It's, um, I just had the privilege of doing an interview with Rick Hansen, mm. who he's a meditation teacher and an author, and he wrote Buddha's Brain. Mm. And he is coming out with a new book in early May called Neurodharma. And he talks through these sort of seven aspects of meditation practice. And the very, the very last one is timelessness. And when I was talking to him, I said, in all honesty, I, like I got five sentences into that chapter and knew it was going to take me the rest of my life to read that chapter because mm-hmm. it's so expansive. It's not, there's no sense of like, there's nothing concrete to sit upon. You know, I love that image you just drew of like sitting on the knot in the infinity sign because that is like such a great concrete visual mm-hmm. amidst this idea that is just leaves your mind sort of gaping. So. Yeah. That shape is particularly helpful for me um, because it's the, you know, for the listeners, it's basically like a figure eight flipped on its side. So it's the infinity sign and you can work with it when you're caught in a dual space. Uh, I use it for my walking meditation, but you can also use it mentally to think I'm caught between past and future. I'm caught between right and wrong, Republican, Democrat, white, black, um, you know, gay, straight, uh, should, shouldn't, whatever we're, we're kind of ensnared within. One can imagine running that circuitry around it, knowing that you're always moving towards the opposite, the other opposite. It's always um, folding in on itself. And, and there is that kind of stability in the knot. And then once you contemplate the knot enough, it's actually doesn't exist either because um, you start thinking about it more three-dimensionally. And if you envision that uh, shape in space, it's actually, it never uh, touches. Mm. So um, this for me feels, I have a similar feeling um, as you explained, like, oh, this is the lifetime practice. This is the the long arc. Um, and it feels to me like uh, very dharmic for me to study time, to build a relationship with it and do the best that I can to, um, I don't know, be with it, I guess. is mm-hmm. There's nothing really to achieve in the timeless space. Um, but it's, it's very lucid. It's very, very potent. It's a a space we all enter, you know, we're talking about it very esoterically right now, but it's a space even Brene Brown talks about when you lose track of time, because you're in a joyful space, you're in a playful space, you know, you're playing soccer with your kids or you're playing a musical instrument or you're making love or like whatever you are not in a, (laughs) you're not in logic time. I mean, Michael Mead talks about it like logic, logos time and mythos time, logic, logical time, which is the face of the clock, the digital clock, 
and then mythic time, which basically means like we kind of have to navigate all the time. Like, where are we? What are we doing? What, what's next? It's not like you eat at the exact same time. He says, anytime you enter a ritual space, you're in mythic time. So you go to a weekend retreat and you wonder why it feels like you've been there for like 10 days. It's because that shift has happened between logic and mythic. And it happens in, in meditation as well. You know, a single moment or a single chime or something can kind of expand outwards. Yes. Yes, that is so true. I wonder if you um, have a minute or two to maybe lead us in just a short practice based on what we talked about today. Sure. I'll try to keep it um, brief so we can drop in um, without having it be a big thing. So let's just, um, for the listeners out there, uh, as long as you're not driving, (laughs) you can close your eyes kind of wherever you are. So it's not like go to your altar, just simply... Uh, settle into the body as it is in this very moment. You can leave your hands where they are and your feet might be crossed or you might be standing. Just taking a couple of breaths into this very moment unlike any other. and softening into the uniqueness of the moment. And just acknowledging that you are in fact exactly where you are, feeling just as you feel with all the nuances of this very moment. Very precise moment. And taking another soft but deep breath into this precision of this moment. And we'll drift back in time, consciously, to another very precise moment. in which you felt so alive. Just let the moment come to you without judgment and without changing it. A moment in the past seeks you. And right now, the work is to look back at it
Where were you? What were you doing? Sense the fullness of the memory in the whole body. Sense the colors around you. What color was the sky? The details. Taking a few breaths into this precise moment of the past. The vitality. Soften into it. Notice one more thing. Notice one more thing about that you that is in the past but now appears in this precise present moment to deliver you guidance, a remedy, solace, vitality. Notice one more thing about that you Maybe a color or an image or a single word. And now returning to this present day you in whatever way that feels right. You can bow or nod or high five that you from the past Thank you. And acknowledging that the two of you together are moving towards a you that in the future will look back with gratitude for this precise moment. And in this way we thread together the past and the future. We send that message of radiance, vitality, and we thread it through all three selves. Knowing that you have the capacity to do this, And taking one last breath in gratitude for time itself and the precision of the moment. And when you're ready, coming back.
And then um, if there is an image or um, a color, especially if it's just a color, don't uh, disregard it. I would take a marker, just fill the whole page with that color. Or um, if there's an image or word, utilize that information. It can be incredibly helpful. Thank you, Kim. That was amazing. Thank you. I've so appreciated uh, having this chance to talk with you and and look at practice as a collage. I love this invitation you've left us with. It's been mm. great. Thanks. I use it myself. Here's to collage. Here's to collage. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to me if you would take time to leave a review or share this with somebody you think would enjoy it. To learn more about my in-person and virtual offerings, visit MerylArnett.com or check me out on Instagram at MerylArnett. Thanks, y'all. See you next week.